When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you All Men Must Die, Power and Passion in the Game of Thrones by Professor Caroline Larrington. All Men Must Die, or Valar Margulis, as the traditional Essos greeting is rendered in High Valyrian. And die they do, in prodigious numbers, in imaginatively varied and gruesome ways, and often in terror with the viciously unpredictable world that is HBO's sensational evocation of Game of Thrones. Epic in scope and in imaginative breadth, the stories that are brought to life tell of the dramatic rise and fall of nations, the brutal sweeping away of the old orders, and the advent of new autarchs in the eternal quest for dominion. Yet, as this book reveals, many potent and intimate narratives of love and passion can be found within these grand landscapes of heroism, honor, and death. They focus on strong relationships between women and family, as well as among the anti-heroes, the cripples, bastards, and broken things. In this vital follow-up to her book, Winter is Coming, also published by Bloomsbury, acclaimed medievalist Caroline Larrington explores themes of power, blood kin, lust, and sex in order to draw entirely fresh meanings out of the show of the century. Caroline Larrington is Professor of Medieval Literature at University of Oxford, UK. She completed her DPhil in Old English and Old Norse at Oxford, and now teaches Old and Middle English literature, as well as English and Old Norse Icelandic languages. Previous publications include books on Norse mythology and literature, and the other book I mentioned on Game of Thrones. Also, Professor Larrington has been awarded the Order of the Falcon by the President of Iceland for her services to Icelandic literature. She joins me today to talk about her new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies. Caroline, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be invited. Thank you, Carrie. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Uh, So I am the professor of 
Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford here. And I have been teaching medieval literature for oh more than 30 years now. But my interest in Old Norse Icelandic started kind of when I was a kid, when I just loved all the myths, the Greek myths and Norse myths and the Celtic myths and so on. But what really kicked it off was going to work in a hotel in Norway for four months before I went to university. And I got to know some Icelanders there and I picked up some Norwegian as well. And so when I discovered that it was possible to study Old Icelandic and all of the Norse myths as part of the English course at Oxford, I was in and I haven't really relinquished my interest in Old Icelandic since then. So that was how I came to be, in some ways, how I came to be a medievalist. And then I was on a plane going to the States in 2012, and I kind of heard about Game of Thrones, but I hadn't got round to watching any of it. But my seat companion fell asleep the moment that we took off, and I was looking for something to watch. I knew that a lot of season two had been filmed in Iceland, so I was taking a kind of professional interest in it. And within 20 minutes of watching the first episode of season one, I was just completely hooked. So that was where it all started. (laughs) Right. So next, maybe tell us how you came to write this particular book. So this particular book kind of riffs off the first book I wrote about Game of Thrones, which I know we're going to talk about later. And that was Winter is Coming, the Medieval World of Game of Thrones. And once I finished writing that book, which really is a kind of account of the parallels and maybe some of the sources that inform George R. R. Martin's imagination when it comes to, to his world building, I thought... Well, I've I've written a book about the world, but I, I need to find out how the series is going to end. And because I'm a literary scholar, not a historian, I was really interested in the stories in Game of Thrones. And at that point, I realized I could let go of the books, which were not clearly going to be completed anytime soon, and just write something which was able to deal with what what we might see as a completed literary or completed artwork, and just trace out the major themes and characters, plots and um, and external meanings that the, the show seemed to end up with. Right. So yeah, I did want to ask you about the first book, because I think um, in understanding your approach with this one, it would work to compare and contrast uh, your approach with the first one. So uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Winter is Coming was a little bit more informal than All Men Must Die in some ways. And what I really wanted to do in Winter is Coming is to present a kind of user-friendly introduction to the medieval world and to invite people who were interested in Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, to think a bit about how far the real, actual, historical medieval world, but also medieval literature, medieval superstition and belief might have been part of what George R. R. Martin was thinking about when he came to construct this whole huge conspectus of a medieval planet, as we might think of it. So it's not just the Seven Kingdoms, but it goes across all the way across into Essos as well. And so I wanted to to just unpack some of the the things that seem to have fed into 
Martin's thinking, and after him, of course, the the thinking of Benioff and, and Vice as uh, as the showrunners on the actual TV show, and so that it meant investigating things like the history of the Mongols for the Dothraki, looking a bit about Renaissance trading. Yeah, so it meant um, investigating the history of the the Mongol Empire for thinking about the Dothraki. It meant looking at late medieval, early modern mercantile trading states in the Mediterranean for the the free cities. And, of course, thinking about the Vikings as a source for the ironborn, thinking about a more early medieval Anglo-Saxon type society in the north of the the Seven Kingdoms, and something that's much more familiar late medieval in the South. And so what I really wanted to do was to introduce that medieval world without making any claims that Martin necessarily had read all this stuff or was directly basing his imagined material on these sources, but simply saying, these are the kinds of things that are feeding into that world. And if you're interested in thinking more about what it's like to be a Dothraki, you might look at at some of the texts that I mentioned. But of course, that book was always hampered by the fact that I finished it around about the end of season five. And so I had to do a fair amount of guessing as to what was going to happen over the, the rest of the show. And it's quite interesting to go back for me and look at some of the things I guessed right and some of the things I guessed completely wrong. Interesting. So yeah, as you mentioned, this book is kind of, uh, you you approach the series thematically and just explore um, some of the major themes and how they um, uh, develop uh, within the series. So let's start with uh, institutions in the family, uh, the setting. Um, and so you call th- these elements the building blocks of Westerosi culture, and that they build upon audiences existing familiarity with the medievalist fantasy genre. So let's start with that. Let's start by talking about class structure and bloodlines. Well, where I think we really have to start when thinking about how society works in the Seven Kingdoms is it starts with the house. And the house, of course, maps onto family as well. But it's all about the history of the family too. And your house really does seem to determine your identity and the way in which everybody expects you to behave. That's, of course, quite problematic if you're illegitimate, like Jon Snow or like um, Ramsay Bolton, formerly Ramsay Snow. Um, But for everybody else, the idea of the history of their house is is quite important in the expectations that are are set for them. And so along with the house, you have a very marked interest in aristocratic culture. And one of the things I think is very interesting about the Seven Kingdoms is that you have the small folk who are basically peasants, labourers, and you have the aristocracy, who are the members of the great houses and the small houses. You don't have a whole lot in between. You obviously have some craftsmen because somebody has to manufacture the swords and the armor and the helmets. Somebody has to do the trading to bring the, the foodstuffs across the narrow sea. But for the most part, there isn't a great deal of other 
kind of economic activity going on in in King's Landing, it seems to me. So there's quite a marked polarisation between high and low in the show, which kind of plays out very much, of course, in the later seasons. Right. Okay. And the family itself and the roles uh, that individuals play within those families uh, are also really important. Clearly, motherhood, uh, fatherhood, and siblings are elements that uh, Martin seems to really focus on. Yeah. And I think in some ways, um, we have some really quite interesting takes on all three of those relationships. Now, motherhood, for example, becomes in a sense, queered through Daenerys's claim that the dragons are her children, that she has given birth to them, in a sense, since she sort of oversaw their hatching. And she comes to feel about them with all the kind of strength of feeling that that we associate with maternity. But somehow, and problematically in many ways, it's a maternity that's not going anywhere. You can't, once Daenerys is no longer with us, you can't put a dragon on the throne. So that kind of maternity becomes very problematic. Then you've got other kinds of weird maternity, like um, Lysa Arryn, for example, who's still breastfeeding little Robin at the age of 10 or 11. And we're invited to look at her and think that this is very unsatisfactory and rather frightening. We've got Caitlin, who is a a strong example of a mother, except that she refuses to to mother Jon Snow in any way. But she seems to find it quite difficult to let go of maternal authority over over her oldest child, for example. And so she acts around him and, and causes him all kinds of difficulties in terms of negotiating with Jamie behind his back and so on. And then, of course, we have Cersei. And now Tyrion says of Cersei that she her one good feature quite early on is that she loves her children and that she has great cheekbones. But the, the ways in which Cersei mothers are problematic in the show uh, she indulges Joffrey. She drives Tommen to suicide, and poor old Myrcella gets sent off like so many medieval princesses would have done. Get sent off to dawn, and so there are ways in which the mother is quite a difficult figure in the show. But yet, she is present. Whereas, of course, in in quite a lot of folk tales or fairy tales, the heroes are orphans, or it's a father and his sons or a father and his daughters. And the mother is quite often taken out of the equation. So it's interesting the mothers get kept in here. And then thinking about fathers, I think one of the interesting patterns in the show, again, is that there are some terrible fathers. Daenerys and Tyrion sit down together and say, look at us, two terrible children of two terrible fathers when they're in Marine. And of course, Daenerys's father was the Mad King who burnt people alive. Tywin has indeed been murdered by Tyrion, but he spent his time tyrannizing over his children. And you can see how that T-I element in the name, I think, kind of informs the way in which he behaves towards his offspring, even when they're grown up. And so 
we have bad fathers like that. We have um, Ruth Bolton, Ramsey Bolton's father, who's not a great example of paternity either. And the one really positive father figure we have in Ned Stark is, of course, taken away at the end of the first season. So you have bad fathers and you have a good dead father. But what we do begin to see is figures like Davos, for example, emerging as a better father to little Shireen Baratheon than her own father is. And there's a kind of possibility of being a good father to somebody else's children that disrupts this notion of the bloodline. So we have Davos caring very much about Shireen and and swearing vengeance for her. And we have Sam taking over little Sam with uh, who's been fathered incestuously on on Gilly by her own father, Craster. And so there's a way in which the younger men, perhaps, not Davos is not, of course, one of the younger generation, but certainly the idea of what it means to father also gets disconnected from the notion of bloodline, that it doesn't matter if this child has your blood, as long as you're prepared to care for it and, and nurture it. But I suppose finally... What the show is about is getting away from fathers and mothers and becoming your own self because the show is interested in following this this generation of younger people with, of course, um, Cersei and Jamie as representations of a slightly older generation. And it's the fates of those younger people that the show follows across those eight seasons. And there, the sibling bond is a really critical one. And I suppose one of the the key moments at the end of the whole show is when the Starks, the surviving Stark siblings, are all together, finally seeing Arya off to to uh, to sail away. And that sense that siblings have more loyalty to each other than anybody else, which we see with Yar and Theon as well, becomes very important, I think. You can't rely on your parents. You can't rely on the older generation. You can perhaps rely on your friends, but your siblings are there for you, except, of course, when they're not, when they're, in fact, poisonous, murderous siblings of the sort that we find locked in this kind of unholy dynamic, like the the Hound and the Mountain, and indeed the way in which Viserys treats Daenerys in the, the first season makes us kind of not feel too sorry for him when Drogo pours molten gold all over his head. It's a horrible way to die. But in the end, you can see why Daenerys kind of says, well, yeah, he deserved that. Yeah, so that actually um, ties into uh, my next question ties into some of the things that you had previously alluded to, which is the importance of the character arcs of of many of the main characters, which I think a lot of people would agree is the element that really draws uh, people in to be so invested in this series and these books. And you make a really interesting point in the book that the buildings Roman, uh, which is a subgenre of literature that follows a young person to maturation, this in fact stems from the medieval romance structure. So perhaps you could first explain these ideas and terms to us and then tell us how you see the buildings Roman developed in Game of Thrones. Sure. Well, the buildings Roman is really a 
a genre, a subgenre of the novel, which developed in 18th century Germany, which is why it has a German name. But we can trace its roots back to medieval romance, to the story of how a young man usually has to leave home, go on various adventures. Maybe he needs to recover his kingdom, which has been lost. Maybe he has to go and fight a dragon or find a, a missing treasure or rescue a princess. And what happens during the course of that story, the events that he deals with, the adventures that he has, is what builds his character. And by the end of it, he emerges into adulthood with a wife and a kingdom, and he can live happily ever after. And the Bildungsroman is really interested in as much in the process, how people react to the different things that happen to them, how they educate or train them or change them as what we get at the end of the story itself, what the, the finished character is like. And I think we can see this with, with so many of the characters that we're really interested in in Game of Thrones. Arya perhaps is the most obvious example because she starts off as as a very young girl, a tomboy who doesn't want to be acculturated to all the practices that are associated with being a woman in aristocratic society, even though the North is a, a bit less formal than they are in, the, in King's Landing, say. But she dreams of becoming a fighter like John, and she makes that happen one way or another through the, the training she has from her beloved dancing master who trains her with the with a, a light sword. And then John gives her her, her token sword needle, which she, she takes with her through the rest of her adventures. And she ends up in an extraordinary place in a way as the agent who brings down the Night King in a way which I certainly must admit I did not see coming. And she is somebody who then can't fit back at all into the world of the North, even under her sister's rule, or find herself a place in King's Landing either. She has to to leave this rather restrictive society altogether. And then we have Jon Snow, whose story we can see as one of somebody who grows from being a great fighter into quite a skilled leader, a diplomat, someone who knows how to manage people and to persuade them to things. Somebody indeed who undergoes that journey into the underworld of death, which is is so important and epic. We can see Sansa growing from this very naive, wide-eyed girl into a pretty steely character by the end of the show. And we can see characters like Jamie and Theon going on a long, long journey of redemption. So the ways in which those characters develop, I think, is what really fix people's interest in the show. They they weren't all heroes or all villains. They were kind of shades of grey in all of them. And that made it really interesting for people to see how they were going to deal with what life was going to throw at them and where they were going to end up. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so brilliantly done too. Um, so to move on to our next theme, you meditate on power and knowledge in uh, in the series. And you write that Game of Thrones, and I'm quoting you here, Game of Thrones is obsessed with questions of power, authority, and influence, which represent an important set of distinctions. So I like this because I always considered the series as a meditation on leadership, testing out various leadership styles to expose which values and strategies end up being 
practically more successful than others, almost like a Machiavellian weighing of ideal values versus what is practical and works, right? But I like the way that you expand on this idea to incorporate the subtler forms of power like influence and knowledge. So let's start with the most overt and explicit form of power in Westeros, which is basically the monarchy on the Iron Throne and money. Yeah, um, I think you're right. The leadership is really key to how you exercise your power. And the Iron Throne is is the kind of central symbol of power, at least in the Seven Kingdoms. And the occupant of the Iron Throne has to take care of, of the conditions of everybody in the Seven Kingdoms. But actually, nobody seems to care that much about kingship. Um, when Robert Baratheon at the beginning of the show is interested in hunting and drinking and whoring, he says, and he has his small council to do the ruling for him. Uh, Joffrey is is wildly capricious and a terrible military leader. Cersei is no better either. And Daenerys is somebody whom you can see trying to work out how to to rule over marine, which is a, a different kind of category of of rulership altogether. But I think there are interesting questions in some of the kind of debates in small rooms that we get, um, for example, between Varys and Baelish about what really matters. And Varys, for all I think we don't trust him necessarily in season one, we do begin to see him as a good actor who is interested in the good of the realm. And he says you know, I'm, that's what he's, he's working for because somebody has to care about these, these larger questions of rule. Whereas Baelish says, oh, it looks as if winter is coming again. Well, I guess some of the small folk will die, but yeah, fewer small folk to worry about. And so there are ways, I think, in which we can see those larger questions of power as vested in the Iron Throne, but subcontracted down to the small council as very interesting questions about how medieval rule was carried out. And I also think it's interesting, too, to see the way that influence works, people talking to each other, persuading each other about things. Very often people like Varys, um, Baelish and Tyrion just not having much authority in themselves, except when Tyrion is hand. But even when he is hand, he's always being overruled by Tywin in some ways. But they're able to to think up strategies to persuade people of things. They think in particular when when Varys and Tyrion are trying to run Marine, what kinds of strategies might work when you have a, a population that's basically in revolt. So I think the the ways in which power, political power plays out are extremely interesting. I also think that one of the the ways the show kind of lost its way towards the end of the the um, the series was to sort of lose sight of the institutions that make Westeros. And somehow things like the Faith of the Seven, once all the sparrows have been blown up, somehow 
that didn't matter particularly in the great scale of the show. And the the real economic questions like who's going to feed people when you've ravaged the breadbasket of the Seven Kingdoms by all that fighting in the Riverlands, how are the small folk going to live? What's going to happen if they start starving? Those questions began to get lost. And in particular, I've always been very interested in the role of the Iron Bank of Bravos as being very much a kind of power player in events in the Seven Kingdoms, deciding that they'll fund Stannis simply because he looks like he might be a winner and the crown owes them a vast amount of money. And then Cersei being able to bring back more funding from the Iron Bank by giving them lots, paying off lots of the crown's debts through the money that she took from Highgarden. So there's an interesting kind of economic underpinning at times in the show that vanishes as well. But in, in a way, I think there's not quite enough emphasis on economic power. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I love stories that get in get into the world building to, and the intrigue, political intrigue to that degree that those kinds of issues are, you know, important and cause suspense and tension. But I don't know, maybe the show felt like I'm not the typical viewer. I'm not sure. Maybe the dragons and the sword fights are, are more widely uh, popular. It but, was a shame, uh, I think, we didn't see more of the Iron Bank of Bravos because they, their operations is like um, late medieval Italian bankers and the kinds of political thinking they were doing were very insightful, I think. But then we, we just didn't go back to them after about season six, I think. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, they would be such a power player. There's so much emphasis placed on the fact that the Lannisters have so much power because they have a gold mine. So it makes sense that they would be more involved, and yet they just kind of, like you say, disappear into the background. So let's also discuss the dimension of the story's exploration of different approaches to wield, uh, wielding power. Tell us what other kinds of things you see happening here. Well, the other interesting topic, I think, which the the show, it kind of flags up more markedly in the last seasons, and that's the maesters as the people who have the monopoly over learning. And at first, I think, because we meet some quite nice ones. We, Mesa Lewin in, in Winterfell is very knowledgeable and friendly and supportive to the young people. Um, Maester Eamon at Castle Black is uh, somebody who's seen many things and has a great deal of wisdom. Um, but when we actually get to the Citadel, when we get to the centre of the Order of the Maesters in Old Town, we realise how much of an ivory tower that is, how learning is barred to women, barred to poorer people, and how even if you come to this citadel of knowledge with actual pragmatic eyewitness experience, as Sam has, of what it means for the White Walkers to be loose again in the north and the fact that the long night is about to fall on the kingdoms, and the maesters won't take any notice of him. He looks like the best student they must have seen for years, but they set him to you know, cleaning out the bedpans of the older and more senile members of the community. And there's something very disturbing about the way that knowledge is locked up 
but not even put to particularly good use there. Because it seems to encourage people going rogue, like Kyburn, who's been thrown out of the order, um, understandably, given his enthusiasm for all kinds of horrific experimentation, vivisection, um, transplanting new life into into decaying bodies. Uh, if you don't have a, a knowledge system that works for the good of the whole community, then you start getting very strange kinds of, of branches of knowledge. And then besides that, of course, we've got something which is is critically important in the plot, but not all that well explained in some ways. And that's the phenomenon of green sight, being able to see the future or being able to see visions of things happening in other places, which Bran has and which Joe Jen Reed has as well. And all of this is connected up in some way with the, the three-eyed raven and the ways in which his knowledge, which at first seems to be very much connected with the trees of, of the weirwoods, and to run throughout the north, suddenly then begins to bridge time and space and take him to dawn, for example, which it's not really clear what the three-eyed raven's limitations are. And certainly when Bran tells us towards the the very end of the show that the three-eyed raven and the night king have been battling against each other many times over the past centuries that comes as quite a surprise i think so there's some ways in which that more mystical kind of knowledge is hinted at but not explained sufficiently and i, th I think that's maybe a bit of a failing in the in the show in that particular thematic area hmm. interesting so uh, let's move on to the role of emotion in the epic. So you clarify that romantic relationships are not necessarily central to the traditional epic fantasy or romance genres, but that the full range of emotions are foregrounded in Game of Thrones for both motivating the plot and developing the characters. So shall we start with romantic love and desire? Game of Thrones is famous for its sex scenes, of course, but there's much more to it than that. How do you interpret what's happening? there? Well, I think we have to distinguish in many ways between the sex scenes, which we might come on to in, in a moment in terms of how they function really just to, to pull in the, the kind of audience that HBO was designing the show for. But romantic love is something which in traditional epic, and if we think here about something like Virgil's Aeneid, what that's about is the fate of men and nations. It's about Aeneas finding his way to Italy and to founding what will become eventually the Roman Empire. And his marriage to Lavinia is a kind of byproduct of that. He's also, of course, had a relationship with Dido, but he's had to leave her behind because he has this imperial ad adventure to conclude. So romantic love quite often is sidelined by epic. But I think in fantasy, we normally expect that there will be a big love story and that it will end somehow through all the, the tribulations of those characters in a kind of happy ever after wedding. And Game of Thrones just doesn't seem to want to do that. The the possibilities of romantic love are thwarted at every turn just about the... Um, People like Rob and Talisa, who have this beautiful love, a love which is politically disastrous in terms of the, the fate of the North, um, are killed in the most brutal way possible at the Red Wedding. Uh, Sansa has 
many romantic ideas. She thinks she's going to marry Joffrey, and there I think she she dodged the bullet in many ways. But she has an idea of romantic love, which gets really systematically dismantled by the time she's been married to Tyrion, and then God help us, married to Ramsay. And by the end of the show, the people who could have married each other, of course, were Daenerys and Jon Snow. But because of the the blood tie between them, even if Targaryens are are not so bothered about that kind of thing, I think Jon Snow certainly was. And and that possible relationship is is ground down into the the dust, and so we're left with nobody getting married and living happily ever after, which I think is an interesting way of sort of dismantling that particular mythology of of how heterosexual normative relationships should be a, a key part of of the way in which these large epics are resolved. So we end up at the end, as, and this is something I hadn't expected at all as I was writing the book. So it comes to the conclusion that although family ties remain strong at the sibling level we were talking about earlier, there aren't any new families because no one's getting married. No one's having children except Gilly is pregnant you know, somewhere off stage. But apart from that, there's no real sense of how things are going to go on into the future it's going to be the same old people, our old friends who we've become quite fond of, like like Tyrion, like Bronn, Davos, Brienne in particular, sitting around the, the small council table. Um, but love hasn't been generative, particularly there. It's been only sibling love and loyalty. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, it, I think it ties together with Martin's um, dismantling of chivalry as well. And chivalry and romance were tied together quite a bit, I think, in some versions of um, of the romance plot. So, yeah, and there's also something very contemporary about this dismantling of the nuclear traditional family Um Maybe he had that in mind. Maybe that was in mind when they were making some of those choices, or maybe it just developed naturally out of contemporary sensibilities. I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting question. That actually ties into uh, my next question about male homosociality, because as you point out, that's a really important theme throughout Game of Thrones. So what do you think are the important takeaways from these examples and how do they contrast to, say, representations of female friendships and associations? Well, it's it's not at all unexpected, of course, but it is very marked that the boys tend to get along together. And I think the best example of that, in a sense, is the the White Hunt, when um, that mystical band of seven warriors goes up to the north to capture a white to bring back to prove to Cersei that there really is an existential threat beyond the wall. And so we get um, some of the, the key people that we're quite fond of, um, Thoros of Mir, Beric Dondarrion, John, of course, Tormund, various other people all involved in it. And there's no women there. Now, in fact, the only one who would really be qualified is Brienne, but um, that uh, never seems to be on the cards. And so we quite often see, as with John and his pals from Castle Black in the Night, Night's Watch as well, people like Dolores Ed and Gren and Pip and so on, um, these young men form really 
powerful emotional bonds with each other that the women never get the chance to do. And that's partly because they're kept separated. Um, perhaps they have a, a relationship with their scepter, but the scepter is always bossing them around. Or there's that very interesting dynamic that develops between Circe and Sansa, which is a real kind of love-hate relationship in some ways. But the idea of sisterhood, apart from between sisters like Sansa and Arya, and even then only at a distance, isn't really developed at all. And the one place where you think perhaps... Arya might be able to find some kind of possibility to bond <clears throat> with other women is in the House of Black and White. But there she's tyrannised over completely by the Waif. Now, the Waif, of course, has, has got this agenda, which is to break down her her individuality and to make Arya into a kind of faceless assassin. But at the same time, that seems like a kind of lost opportunity for a bit more female bonding. So you also have a section you call Bromances and Odd Couples, in which you point out that this feature of the interestingly matched pair of friends is in fact a common trope found in old Norse mythology, old French romances, and hence I would assume that's why we also see it in medievalist fantasy. So this is really interesting. Please tell us about this and how it comes through in Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's it's a very familiar trope in some ways and um, the example I can think of very kind of contemporary again now is Loki and Thor in Old Norse mythology. Thor's the one with the brawn, Loki's the one with the brains and when they go off together in, in mythological adventures that's pretty well how it plays out. It's a, a trope which is known in um, Medieval literature is sapientia et fortitudo, wisdom and strength. And again, it suggests that in these couples, one of them has got the fighting skills, one of them is clever. We could think of Agamemnon and Odysseus, for example. And so what we we don't quite have that distribution in Game of Thrones, but we do have old couples who don't get along. Um, and it's the kind of thing you find in screwball comedy as well, I guess. You have the heroic man and then the ditzy girl who goes along with him. But again, that's always subverted. So you've got Brienne and Jamie, um, who are not a romantic couple until the very end, sort of disastrously, I think, but who learn to respect each other as they go along the way. You have Arian the Hound. Um, the Hound's the one with the strength and also the one with the wisdom. Arya is learning from him as they go along. You've got Bronn and Jamie in, in that venture in Dawn. Uh, Bronn has got some smarts, but at least he's got two hands so he can fight. Jamie, on the other hand, is, is um, disabled by this point, but should at least have some sense of how he ought to be able to negotiate with people in Dawn, though for whatever reason he doesn't. And so I think these old couples particularly the ones that are cross-gender, do play some quite interesting games with the old tropes of, of either screwball comedy or the brains and brawn uh, scenario. And we would be remiss not to discuss the role of hate in this story. <laughs> yeah, hate, um, uh, the last of the emotions there to, to think about perhaps, is critical. Um, it's something which drives the overwhelming concept of vengeance 
and it's something that plays out at a very personal level. We can see Aria with her little list thinking of all the people she hates. Hate keeps her going for a lot of the time. But then in, in one of the best written arcs, I think, in the last season, when she returns to King's Landing with the Hound, the Hound whose life has also been ruled by hate, the hatred that he has for his brother and the psychotic hatred his brother seems to have had for him. The Hound is going to his destiny there. There's no way that you cannot have those two brothers killing each other in this kind of huge um, exemplification of, of real fraternal hostility. But he does Arya an enormous favour by saying, don't stay in King's Landing to try and kill Cersei. She's dead already. Just get out of here. Go and live your life. You don't have to be consumed by hate any longer. And we can we can see how other kinds of hatred, um, again, I guess, not the kind of lifelong hatred that we have with the Hand and his brother, but with these kind of long festering feelings that Daenerys has, I think, a very um, <clears throat> mixed feeling about Westeros, which she feels belongs to her. It's her birthright. But at the same time, they rejected her and her family. And when she turns up, particularly in the north, nobody's very pleased to see her. And that festers into a kind of jealousy of, of John and his relationship with his siblings. And there's a kind of vengeance that uh, that she seems ready to take on the citizens of King's Landing, which is way beyond anything that any of those people merited. And so there is a, a way in which hate as a driving force of narrative is very clear indeed, but there's also quite a, an ethical element to it that hatred in the end destroys everything in its path and it doesn't do you any good as a person to kind of to foster it. Right. So next you turn your attention to the supernatural elements. Uh, these include divine forces and religions, magic and monsters. And you point out that these aspects are also crucial features of the epic and fantasy genres. And in many ways, Game of Thrones is very contemporary by representing skepticism and agnosticism towards the notion of one true religion or God, say, and, uh, partly because it's a world that offers many competing claims to that truth. Uh, in other ways, it can forms to genre convention. So how do you see these elements being navigated and negotiated? Well, one of the, the boldest moves, I think, with um, the first season of Game of Thrones is the way in which I think the, the show was sold as a fantasy epic. And you have those mysterious events before the credits at the beginning of uh, the first episode, where you have something that kills the, um, the Men of the Night's Watch. And you have a lot of talk about dragons. But from episode one all the way through to episode 10, when those dragons hatch out on Daenerys's shoulder, you've had a little bit of undead activity in Castle Black in the middle of the, the season. But apart from that, the fantasy's all kept off stage at that point. The supernatural is something that's vanished. It's something that was part of the past. It's the stories that old Nan used to tell. The dragons are all dead. 
And then suddenly, in this, this wonderful phrase that Dan Hasler-Forest uses, the old numinous powers come roaring back to life. Now, that's a very typical move in fantasy, that things, forces that you think have, have long vanished from the world kind of come back either through a portal in a particular area or they just awaken across the land and you realise that the supernatural is not as distant as you think. And so I think that the, the series plays quite cleverly with those supernatural elements. Um, with the question of religion, it's it's clear that George R. R. Martin was raised a Catholic and you can see the way in which Catholicism uh, kind of feeds into the faith of the seven. But he also does have, since he's no longer a practicing Catholic, he does have quite an agnostic view of the gods. And as, as you said, there are many different gods across all the, the countries of the known world. And people are quite often given to expressing skepticism. If there are so many gods, how can any of them be the, the one god? But yet at the same time, and this is something which I think the show kind of under-explains and has Tyrion and Davos more or less saying to each other, um, I don't know what the role of the Lord of Light, Rahlor, has been in all of this. He has the power to resurrect, but only sometimes when he feels like it. He can be channeled by Melisandre to bring fire when fire is crucial. And somehow he seems to be opposed also to the Night King. But does that mean he's really a, a transcendent god? Because at the other times, where it's suggested that he's just one among a number of other deities who do or don't take any much, very much notice of, of what their adherents ask them for. And so I think we do end up as, with this very sort of agnostic sense that, hey, who knows which of the, any of these gods has any real effect in this world. But also, I think, apart from when the the movement of the sparrows arises, a very unmedieval lack of interest in religion. And I think, for example, before the Battle of Blackwater, if that had been a real medieval battle, every single person would have been in the Great Sept of Baelor, praying that they would survive the battle, seeking forgiveness for their sins. But as it is, when Sansa drops in, she sees the women, the old men praying. And there's a suggestion there that religion is for weaklings. It's for people who've got no other recourse, who can't help themselves with their own hands. And to me, that, that seems a, a very modern kind of idea. So as you point out, George R.R. R. Martin prefers to choose as focalizing characters those who, and we're quoting him, or, or no, I'm sorry, I'm quoting you, don't fit the roles society has for them, and including very famously, and here's the quote from Martin, cripples, bastards, and broken things. So certainly we do see a foregrounding of many characters who do not look like the typical strong and attractive, usually young male heroes of fantasy or epic. So let's talk about women's treatment of female characters first, not only are there many of them, uh, but they tend to be round, well-developed characters with plenty of intelligence and strength in their own rights, um, you know, ac um, exercising the agency that they uh, can, can, basically, in their environments. On the other hand, the show has come under some pretty heavy fire for its violence directed towards them. Uh, so where do you come out on this? 
Well, let, let's take the, the question of the, the sexual violence, first of all, because I think it is something which was very much baked into the show at the very beginning, that it was sexualized violence which pulled in the audiences and the or one of the reasons that audiences were pulled in in the first season and i think certainly in europe we tend not to realize how very vanilla u.s terrestrial tv is so things you just cannot show and you can't say but cable channels can say things and can show things and so there's very much an appeal to the typical male under 25 fantasy epic viewer but i also think as the show went on and remarkably it began to get something like a 50 50 gender split in its audience the showrunners wised up and thought we don't want to alienate the women who are watching this there are also plot reasons as well of course baelish's brothel empire got closed down so gratuitous sex scenes kind of dropped out except for one kind of weirdly um, old-time throwback at the beginning of season eight where we see Braun in bed with a couple of prostitutes for no good reason at all. And that seems very season one, but it's not really what the show's doing by the end of it. I think also there were ways in which the directors made the some scenes, uh, most famously the sex scene between Jamie and Cersei in The Great Set by Tywin's uh, Coffin, made it look non-consensual when in the books it was consensual and the actors both said they had thought they were filming something consensual but the director somehow framed it cut it to to make it look more like a rape um, but I think we can also see too with with Sansa's experience with Ramsay on her wedding night that the director made a conscious decision not to show Sansa being raped by Ramsay but to show us Theon watching Sansa being raped and then he got a lot of flack for making it all about Theon's pain instead of about Sansa's so there was a kind of no-win situation there but apart from the sexual violence which dropped out quite a lot as the the show went on I think you're absolutely right to say that there were terrific female characters in a way we ended up with two mad queens at the end and that drew quite a lot of criticism that uh, people didn't believe in Daenerys's heel turn, as people called it, that this woman we've been rooting for all the time had turned out to be um, quite such a megalomaniac. But I think when you read your way back through the scripts, you can see that there was a propensity to burn people who didn't agree with her already. And I think you can see also the way that Sansa develops is completely believable. It goes through a lot of suffering. And she does say in in season eight that to the hound, that if it hadn't been for all the things that she'd gone through, she would still be a little bird who didn't have the kind of political vision that was going to be necessary to make that audacious bid for independence for the North. And we can see Yara growing into leadership as well so i think there's some some fantastic work done with the the female characters there something that really got away from the old tropes of of damsels in distress or female sidekicks yeah, I will just add, um, my husband and I recently rewatched um, the entire series for a second time in a more compressed time uh, timeline. And so when 
when you watch a second time, you know what to look for. And one of the things we were paying close attention to was the uh, arc of Daenerys. And mm. when you watch her character, yeah. like you say, you really see those authoritarian elements, the narcissistic elements are there from the beginning. They just take a while to come out. So by the time we reach this almost like Nazi rally-esque scene at the end, it did not strike us as a surprise or as a real turn of her character. Um, Just my opinion on on that particular score. And I have to say too that um, that whole hubbub over Sansa's wedding night, um, I mean to an extent, there's there's always going to be fans you can't please, so that goes without saying. Mm. But it was around the same time that there was an Oscar winning movie, um, when River, I think it was, that centered on a rape scene and, you know, the police, uh, you know, going on the investigation and sorting out who did it and all that stuff. And the rapists are clearly bad guys. And but but the idea that the rapists are bad guys and we're going to get revenge so often is a pretext for having these really gross um, softcore like porn scenes is the style of the filming of the rape, which you see in this movie that won an Oscar and nobody seemed to have a complaint about the rape scene. And I think it was a pretty similar time to when there was this scene with Sansa where there was no rape on film. It was just the emotional ramifications of rape on the victims that was portrayed. And there was no softcore porn shoot of the actual act. And so I just thought it was weird the way people criticize one thing and not another, but that's my opinion. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah I, th- I think uh, it was definitely you couldn't please anybody around that. But it, I guess there was also that kind of um, almost a sort of newspaper columnist trope around that time as well, where people were just why I'm no longer watching Game of Thrones. And it was all about a, a, a kind of um, being appalled, being very kind of performatively appalled, I think, at the the violence against women there. And it's true, I think, that no men get raped in the in the show. Though there's certainly some threats around. Um, it's always women who are the victims. But at the same time, we can see the women learning how to fight back, uh, particularly when Sansa. Um, has the satisfaction of seeing Ramsay's dog munching him to pieces. And so I, I think uh, there was something a bit kind of, I don't know, pearl clutching about uh, about some of the later responses to, to sexual violence. That sounds right to me. And I also think that, you know, shows that demonstrate or stories generally that demonstrate just how vulnerable um, and subjected to violence women are when when you're in a thoroughly patriarchal environment. Um, You know, Handmaid's Tale is another one of these. I think these serve as valuable reminders of just how much feminism has done for us. I feel like sometimes we're living in the benefits of, of, you know, feminist inflected society today, and we can easily forget, younger women especially, can easily forget that, no, we fought for this kind of, even though the levels of equity we have are nowhere near good enough, you know, there's plenty more to still work for. I think it's easy to forget how far we've come. And sometimes these stories can remind us of just how vulnerable um, our, our equity is. And so instead of, you know, being upset that we're not shown a feminist utopia or something, um, 
I don't know. I think it just serves as a good reminder sometimes. Yeah, and I think it's, I, I know we're going to talk briefly about House of the Dragon later, uh, but there's no rapes in that so far. True. Yeah, no, and that's again, true. I think there's there's learning there. Interesting. And and the series, yeah, we'll, we'll save it for then. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, okay, but let's talk about the men and how masculinity itself is, is developed kind of uh, along the same lines uh, or differently. And we kind of touched upon uh, chivalry and the notions of critiquing medieval chivalry. But yeah, tell us what you see going on here. Well, chivalry, I think, is really interesting, the way the show treats that, because in most fantasy epic there is a code of of best practice for for men um women aren't normally included in it except as being the recipients um but chivalry has been thoroughly uh discredited i think by the time you get to the end of the show you've seen knights behaving incredibly badly you've seen the great tournament of the hand has developed into a, a spectacle where somebody just cuts his horse's head off because it's embarrassed him and and people are playing foul all the time. You have Sir Merrin Trent being ready to slap Sansa across the face with his iron gauntlet. And so there's a sense in which that the dismantling of chivalry gives you a sense of what happens when a masculinity, which I think we can only really describe as toxic, no longer has any kind of civilizing rules to contain it, where anything goes for those men, uh, and questions of honor and shame, which are really critical to to pre-modern societies in terms of making people police their behavior and not behave in ways which are completely antisocial. They kind of go by the board if if they're not contained by some code like chivalry. But chivalry then gets rehabilitated in, in that wonderful scene where Jamie knights Brienne. And I thought that was one of the, the best pieces of writing in the whole last season was the that that scene where she she becomes a knight, which is what she's always wanted to be. And I think you can see as well the ways in which the a kind of identification of masculinity with martial prowess becomes untenable. When somebody like Sam is offered by his father choice between going to the wall or being killed because he likes reading books and he's he's overweight and he can't fight to save his well he can fight to save Gilly's life when he has the the obsidian knife that a knife that uh, kills the White Walker. There's no place for these men who who don't identify masculinity with having a sword. And you can see the kind of huge identity crisis Jamie goes through when he loses his sword hand so deliberately sliced off in order to make him not a man any longer. And so I think what the, the show doesn't quite manage to do is to offer really strong alternatives we have Davos as somebody who can he can still fight, but he's he's maybe more caring, maybe wiser. But otherwise, we still have quite a, um, a celebration of warrior prowess still going on. And the alternative models of masculinity haven't really been given full play 
um, we've got Bran sitting there in his wheelchair ruling the, the six kingdoms, but he doesn't look to me like he's going to be much of a better king than Robert Baratheon because he's off thinking great thoughts and not really um, doing any kind of hands-on ruling. He's left that to the old guard. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So let's also talk about some of the groups that are dis- depicted as marginal in some way. So we've got Essos, Dorne, the lands beyond the Narrow Sea, uh, and some other oh, that those guys are often predicted or depicted according to Orientalist cliches, as you point out. Um, and then some of the other guys, the Free Folk, Wildings, and others evoke some other stereotypes. So considering this, how progressive is Game of Thrones uh, on that score, would you say? Well, Looking at Game of Thrones now from 2022, it doesn't look terribly progressive. You have um, a lot of Orientalist cliches about the untrustworthy folk from the East. They tell you what you want to hear. They're lying to you all the time. They're mounting urban insurgencies. They are always plotting behind your back or they, they're kind of childlike in their simplicity, just waiting for some white woman to come along and liberate them from their oppressors. So we can see a whole lot of those cliches there. But then, of course, cliches are inherited from Martin's books. But I think it is important to give a bit of credit to the fact that you do get characters like Miss Ande, who's not a, a very well-developed character in the book. She's much younger, and she just... Um, talks I guess she just works as an interpreter and she doesn't grow into the fully fledged figure of a woman of colour that we find in the show and Grey Worm too is is not anything like as developed in the books as in the show he's just an obedient leader of the troops mm-hmm. so the show did do some work to give some uh, actors of, of colour a, a better size of part but I was also very sorry that Essos just got dumped and as far as we know, I'm pretty sure that the slavery's been reinstituted in the cities of Slavers Bay. I don't trust Dario Naharis to keep people down, and the powers of Atlantis are going to be reinstituting the slave, the slave trade the moment they get the chance. But it doesn't matter because Daenerys learned some tricks of rule at that point. So I think they all get rather um, chucked overboard. The the whole Dawn storyline, which could have been a lot more interesting. It was maybe just one storyline too many, I think. The show never got that invested in it. And and I think I heard stories about how filming in Granada and in the Alhambra was really complicated and expensive. And so that meant they wanted to cut down quite a lot of the these scenes which might have been filmed in, in Sunspear otherwise. So they got subject to the same kind of quasi-Orientalist treatment. They're kind of passionate Mediterranean people who just rule by emotion and and would make promises and break them and simply thought about vengeance and sex all the time. And that was really, I thought, pretty tiresome. Right. And then the the free folk um, call things like Shagger, Son of Dolph, and so on. And, and they're subject to quite a lot of ironizing is sort of primitive, um, uncivilized, really sort of old style barbarians. But where I think 
that both the, the books and the show really did give a voice to the other was when Igrit emerges as a spokesman for the Wildings and makes the point, and it's a really important point, I think, about the claims that the Wildlings had on the, the land both north and south of the wall before the Andals and the first men came along, and or the Andals came along, and then after them, the various other tribes, and built a wall across the, the peninsula and said, right, this is our land. And the Wildlings rightly said, you know, the free folk were here first. And you came along and built a wall, and suddenly we're on the wrong side of it. We're not allowed through. What does that mean in terms of real-world politics? And I thought that whole question of what happens when you've got climate change, you've got the White Walkers, you've got huge migration issues, you've got basically climate refugees wanting to come through the wall, and Jon Snow is the arbiter of who gets to come through and who not. And that moral ethical decision is one that I think really does reach out beyond the show even more than it did in the books to ask questions about who belongs on which side of which walls these days. Excellent. So let's conclude this fascinating exploration of possibly the best show on television to date by talking about its ending, how it conforms or confounds expectations. We already kind of mentioned about the dissolution of the nuclear family there and uh, what you think that might say about the relationship we have to the epic fantasy genre today. Well, I think to sum up, we, we've talked about how we didn't end up with uh happy marriage ending we we didn't end up with new families we've ended up with i think a politically rather unsatisfactory uh status quo great that the the north has got its freedom but i don't see how having an elective king is going to stave off civil war any more than a hereditary kingship so i think that's storing up a lot of trouble in the future so the politics of reform didn't really work itself out properly but we did see at least the idea that a kind of totalitarian rule either Cersei's rule or Daenerys's rule was something that decent people couldn't tolerate and we got uh, a sense of women having a lot more agency but they had to be pretty special women they had to be you you're not like other girls kinds of women and um, you had I suppose some move at least for less for the cripples, bastards and broken things to to make themselves felt. So in that way I think it's with with that emphasis on the not heroic male hero, it did open up a lot of possibilities. I mean some we'd seen already in Tolkien, of course, where Sam Gamgee is there beside Frodo all the way through his his journey to to get rid of the ring but sam's always kept very firmly in his kind of class place whereas class became a bit more mobile i think with the sort of arabese we could see in that that last small council and of course the inclusion of brienne as well so i think the the show's done a lot to dismantle a huge amount to dismantle gender stereotypes it's done a certain amount to dismantle racial stereotyping as well and at least to open up quite a few questions about diversity and i think that's that's playing out in other fantasy series that are being commissioned 
as uh, everybody is casting around looking for the, the next Game of Thrones. So, yeah, I think there's been nothing like Game of Thrones. I'm not sure we will ever see anything quite like it again. Well, that leads to my last question, because that's about uh, House of the Dragon. <laughs> it's quite a suggestive thing you, you mentioned there. So, um, yeah, I couldn't help but ask you, what do you think of House of Dragon? I'm making House of the Dragon. I'm making the assumption that you've watched it. Oh, yes, you bet I've watched it. Um, yeah, House of the Dragon. Um, I guess my takeaway for that would be it's not as good as Game of Thrones at its best and it's not as bad as Game of Thrones at its worst. Uh, What it really is is a family drama. Um, We might even say a family melodrama. And it's, it's very tightly depicted in the Targaryen dynasty. We don't get out of King's Landing much or we go to Dragonstone or a couple of other castles. It's always dark. The weather is always terrible. Um, We don't have a sense of a world of all kinds of different possibilities as, as you had in Game of Thrones where filming in Mediterranean locations gave you a sense there are actually some parts of the known world which are quite nice and you might like to go there on holiday. And the the sexual politics has has worked out very interestingly. You've got a lot of female figures who are kind of pitted against each other. Sexual violence has been toned down quite a lot. And what you've got perhaps is instead of women um, being raped, they're perishing in, in grim childbirth scenes. So there's still a kind of fetishization of the female suffering body but somehow working out differently in house of the dragon so i'm hoping in future seasons we're going to get out a bit more i think maybe it's a kind of covid filming in lockdown conditions sort of um vibe that's that's made it feel quite as claustrophobic as it is but it's certainly got some brilliant writing in it and some fantastic characters that's an interesting point about the COVID restrictions. Maybe that is part of it. I I wondered if they were trying to just signal that this is going to be different. We're not just rewriting Game of Thrones with different characters. And so maybe they're trying to at least begin with a tighter focus on fewer characters. Um, the writing strikes me as the writing strikes me as fairly strong because I can never predict where it's going. Um, mm. And the characters, I think they're just the whole season one was just set up. I feel like we're we're only now just starting to see what's at stake start to unfold. But I'm optimistic in any case. Yeah, I think you're right that it was just set up. You Instead of having some kind of 20-minute scene where someone says, well, you have to understand that in the past what happened was you know, all of this, um, showing you the the expo- expository information you need to understand where we are at the end of the, the season was a good decision, I think, even if it meant kind of ageing up the, the actors and getting new people in every few episodes which i found kind of confusing but the dragons are fantastic the cgi effects have really come quite a long way i think yeah the dragons are spectacular you really get a sense of the scale and Mm. the animality of those creatures so yeah that's a that's a good thing um all right. Well, Caroline, I've taken up a lot of your time. I so appreciate uh, you being with us today. But in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? 
Well, I've just got a book coming out in the spring on the reception of Old Norse myth in modern culture. And so I'm very excited about that. That looks at um, Thor and Odin. It looks at Valkyries, the world tree. And it, it traces it through Wagner, but into the Thor movies, into shows like Vikings and... Um, and looks at quite a few interesting novels that rewrite bits of Norse myth very much from a feminist perspective. So that's what I've I've been working on, and uh, that's something I'm really excited to be doing some more publicity around shortly. Oh, that's excellent. Well, let me say thank you again for being on the show today. Your book is a real pleasure to read, and I'm so glad you were able to join me to talk about it. So I will wish you a happy rest of your day. Thank you very much. It's been delightful to be with you. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Caroline Larrington about her new book, All Men Must Die, Power and Passion in Game of Thrones, published by Bloomsbury. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, ideally iTunes, as that gets the most attention. You can also post about us on social media or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. I mean, everybody has an opinion on Game of Thrones, right? So write to me and tell me about yours. Uh, You can find me on Twitter. If Twitter is still a thing when you're listening to this podcast, uh, you can find me there at Carrie Linland, C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Alternatively, do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books Network page on Facebook, and you can follow us there on Twitter if we exist, if Twitter still exists there, where you will see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books.